Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 18. The message today is entitled, We Must Not Lead Alone. We'll look at the entirety of this chapter. It's not really that long, but it's important for us to get the complete narrative of what is taking place here and the instruction that we can gain from it as leaders and as servants of God. The Exodus was behind the people of God in the promised land was in front of them. God had delivered them from bondage in Egypt, and between Egypt and Canaan was the wilderness. In the wilderness, there were many challenges that they would encounter. There were many demands on the leadership of Moses. Moses looms large as this Old Testament figure who is the symbol of God's deliverance among his people. As his responsibilities increased and the load became heavier, Moses was swamped with the various needs and the details of organizing such a large group of people. Without realizing it, he had taken on more than he could bear. There were administrative functions, judicial functions, endless lists of problems and daily issues that the people were presenting to him. And from morning to evening, Moses labored. He worked to try to serve the Lord to lead the people, and to meet the needs of the people. Moses was a deeply spiritual man. He was providing spiritual counsel and leadership. But what he was lacking was a focus on proper leadership and the skills that he needed to implement in order to effectively lead God's people. Henry Blackaby's definition of leadership is my favorite. He says spiritual leadership is getting people onto God's agenda. Such a simple and straightforward definition, but so helpful. Spiritual leadership is getting people onto God's agenda. And I think that's at the heart of Exodus 18. The message that came ultimately from the Lord, but through Moses' father-in-law to help him focus on the task that was before him and to help him understand we must not lead alone. Exodus chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Bible says. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and for God's people Israel when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken in Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back along with her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom, because Moses had said, I've been a resident alien in a foreign land. And the other, Eliezer, because he had said, the God of my father was my helper and rescued me from Pharaoh's sword. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and then kissed him. They asked each other how they had been and went into the tent. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that confronted them on the way and how the Lord rescued them. Verse 9, Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Blessed be the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from the power of Egypt and from the power of Pharaoh. 
He has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. The next day, Moses sat down to judge the people, and they stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw everything he was doing for them, he asked, What is this thing you're doing for the people? Why are you alone sitting as judge while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses replied to his father-in-law, verse 15, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. Whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I make a decision between one man and another. I teach them God's statutes and laws. What you're doing is not good, Moses' father-in-law said to him. You will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you because the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you some advice and God be with you. You be the one to represent the people before God and bring their cases to him. Instruct them about the statutes and laws and teach them the way to live and what they must do. But you should select from all the people able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating dishonest prophet. Place them over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They should judge the people at all times. Then they can bring you every major case, but judge every minor case themselves. In this way, you will lighten your load and they will bear it with you. If you do this and God so directs you, you will be able to endure. And also all these people will be able to go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. So Moses chose able men from all Israel and made them leaders over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They judged the people at all times. They would bring the hard cases to Moses, but they would judge every minor case themselves. Moses let his father-in-law go, and he journeyed to his own land. God had called Moses to lead the people out of Egypt and to the promised land. With this many people gathered together, you can imagine the needs that they had, the questions and the concerns and the issues that arose. The people were coming to Moses from sunrise to sunset to gain a hearing from him. Many, no doubt, were let down because he didn't measure up to what their expectations were. There wasn't enough of him to go around to meet all of these needs. So Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, comes to evaluate the situation and also to offer some practical counsel. What's in view here is really a reunion of the family because uh, the wife and the children had been with Jethro while Moses was leading the people out of Egypt. And he comes to Moses and they meet and they have the customary greeting. They go inside the tent and then Moses begins to tell him all that God had done. He begins to recount the faithfulness of God and the power of God among the people. He brings him up to date with this detailed report of how the hand of God had delivered them and how he had rescued them and he was setting them on this journey to the promised land. 
Evidently, Jethro professes a personal faith in the God of Israel here, which he had not done previously as far as we know, because he rejoices with Moses. He praises God for his grace manifested toward Israel as evidenced by Moses' report. Jethro seemed to acknowledge the superiority of God over all of the other gods who were no gods at all. And he demonstrated his faith by the offering of a burnt offering and the sacrificial meal, which Jethro and Moses and all the elders of Israel ate together. And then Moses began to go over his responsibilities before the people and what he was trying to do to meet their needs. And Jethro, his father-in-law, asked him a very pointed question. And he says, what are you doing? And he says to him, what you are doing is not good. He recognized that he could not lead alone. In the first question, what is this thing that you're doing for the people in verse 14 relates to priorities. He's asking essentially, is this your best use of time and energy and resources? Is this the best way to lead the people of God? This is a common sense question. Is this something that you should be doing in this way? And then when he says to him, why are you doing it alone? It's not a question of priorities. It's now a question of personnel. Why are you not utilizing others to accomplish the task? Why are you not giving responsibilities to others in order to better serve the people? Now, Moses' answer to the question at face value looks like a good answer. And the reason that it looks like a good answer is because it's a spiritual answer. And he gives the obvious answer in verse 15. Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When asked, why, what are you doing and why are you doing this? He says, the people are coming. They're inquiring of me, of God. And in sounding spiritual, he's trying to share his heart because I think he actually did have good intentions. He wanted to serve God faithfully, but he was not doing it in the most effective way. And if we're not careful, if we're serving God in our own strength and we're trying to do every little thing and meet every single need of people rather than staying in our lane and doing what God has called us to do, then we can put ourselves in a position where we are prone to spiritual burnout. Spiritual burnout can happen to servants of God who try to meet impossible expectations. And I was of the camp years ago that I'd rather burn out than I had rust out. And I realized along the way that both are rather foolish. And while I would have denied the reality of spiritual burnout, it wasn't until I hit the wall in my own ministry and in my own experience that I recognized this is in fact a significant problem for those of us who serve the Lord in whatever our capacity is. And if we're not careful, we can try to do it in our own strength and sheer exhaustion can bring us to collapse if we're not mindful of the challenge. In his book entitled Order in Your Private World, Gordon MacDonald compared burnout to sinkholes. He said when underground streams dry up, the surface soil begins to sink to fill the void. Whatever is placed on or near the surface of the ground caves in to fill that void. And then he likens the soul, the private world of a person, to those underground streams. 
when we divert so much of our attention and energy to our ministries and our outward activities that we fail to attend to the needs of our souls, then we can get ourselves in a sinkhole, which is nothing more than spiritual burnout. I believe that Moses was very close to that place. And what appears at first as an insignificant visit from his father-in-law really turns out to be the deliverance of Moses. It turns out to be the proper ordering of God's people. Because as Jethro himself puts it, Moses was wearing himself out and he was also wearing the people out because of his approach. So thanks to a common sense approach from his father-in-law, Moses was delivered from his own destruction and the burnout, which resulted from a distorted perception and a too demanding ministry. See, one of our things that we are most prone to as Christians is burnout in trying to meet the needs of other people. It's a spiritual work. And each of us has leadership responsibility in some capacity. Either you're leading your family or you're leading in some capacity in the church, whatever level that is. You're leading in your vocation, even if it's only a couple of people that you're responsible for. Leadership is all around us, and and our responsibility can become very heavy if we try to do it on our own. But what we can do is, is make adjustments, just like Moses did, that will ease our burden, and we can heed good counsel, and we can follow the path of the Lord in a way that is healthy for us, it's healthy for our family, and it's also healthy for the people that we serve, whether it be in the church or in the vocation that we have. A willing heart must always be kept under control by a wise head. A willing heart that wants to help people, that wants to meet needs, always has to be under the direction and the control of wisdom. And Jethro offered some powerful wisdom and some clear insight. His counsel was instrumental in moving Moses from trying to be the manager of all the people to becoming an effective leader. And leadership requires leaders determining what their essential responsibilities are, and then empowering others to do what their essential responsibilities are. The first focus I want to show you here is that spiritual leaders have the responsibility to pray for the people of God. Spiritual leaders have the responsibility to pray for the people of God. Notice verse 19 again. Now listen to me. I will give you some advice, and God be with you. You be the one to represent the people before God and bring their cases to him. He was the one who was to represent the people and focus on the primary role that God had given him. That way he could provide leadership for the entire group rather than trying to meet every single individual need. If you know your Bible, you'll know that there's a parallel in the New Testament in Acts chapter 6. And what many believe is the calling of the first deacons. And the situation that developed there was the early church was multiplying very rapidly. And a complaint arose among some Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The needs were not being met. So the apostles summoned the whole company of the disciples And they said to them, it would not be right for us to give up preaching and wait on tables. So what you need to do is you need to select from among you men 
who are full of the Holy Spirit and who are full of wisdom, who we can appoint to this duty. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 4 says, but we will devote ourselves first to prayer. Let me just ask you in your area of leadership, do you consistently pray for the people that you're leading? Do you consistently pray for the people that you're serving? In in your personal devotion time last week, in that family that God's given you the incredible responsibility to lead, did you pray for each one of them by name each day? Did you intercede on their behalf and represent them to God and ask God to help them with the needs that they're dealing with? Bible fellowship teacher, did you take your responsibility seriously last week? Did you pray for those people who are in your care that you're leading and that you're serving through uh, your role in the church? Are you praying for the people that you're influencing in your sphere of life, whatever that is? And even if they're unbelievers in your workplace, are you praying that God would save them? Are you praying that that God would transform their lives like he's transformed your life if you're a follower of Jesus? You see, spiritual leaders have the responsibility to pray for the people of God and to pray for those who are not yet the people of God and to be sure that we are spiritually engaging. It's a lot easier just to do. It's a lot easier to be task-oriented. It's a lot easier just to checklist and to accomplish these things and to say that we've done them. But at the very core of leadership, it is a spiritual task. And if we don't take our spiritual task seriously, we cannot effectively lead. The second area of focus is that spiritual leaders have the responsibility to minister the word of God. He says here in verse 20, instruct them about the statutes and laws and teach them the way to live and what they must do. Moses was to teach the people about the ways of God. He was to instruct them in biblical principles that would inform and guide their lives. The parallel in Acts chapter 6, the second part of verse 4, the apostles said, we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word. Servant leaders direct the people of God from God's word. I didn't always understand this as I was finding my way early on in ministry particularly, but God made it very clear to me along the way from his word that I am most useful to the people of God when I'm praying and when I'm in the word and when I'm faithfully and effectively teaching and delivering the word, helping people know how to live their lives and how to follow and honor God. And as you pray for the people that you lead, You've got the opportunity to tell them about what is right, to provide practical counsel and wisdom in their lives. You know something I've noticed along the way? The vast majority of guidance that I give outside of the public ministry of the word like this is one-on-one when people come and they present an issue or they ask a question and they want to know, what should I do? Here's what I found many times in the church. They already know what they need to do but they need someone else to encourage them and to affirm that they're going in the right direction according to the word. And the reason that they know what to do is because they've been taught the word of God, they're disciples, and they're in the family of God, they're in the community of faith, they're putting their 
focus in on knowing God through his word, and then the people of God can come alongside them and encourage them in the word. So how seriously do you take your responsibility to lead other people in the word? Bible fellowship teacher, how much time did you put in last week to preparing yourself so that when you stepped into that group this morning, you had something that was of depth and was of spiritual substance and had been prayed over and was applicable to the very people that God had entrusted you to lead. If you're a children's, a sprouts teacher, a leader, and you've been entrusted with a little flock in there that you're going to teach every week, you're not there for babysitting. You're there to spiritually influence those children. You're there to love them in the word and to shepherd them. And are you taking that responsibility seriously? Are are you understanding the gravity of the responsibility God has given you? And are you instructing them properly in the word of God? There's an interesting exchange between Jesus and Peter after the restoration of Peter in John 21. And Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, of course I love you. And then Jesus says, well, feed my sheep. He says, Peter, do you love me? He says, of course I love you, Jesus. He said, well, then shepherd my people. He said, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, of course you know that I love you. He said, feed my sheep. You see, Jesus, the living word, understood the significance of the written word being applied in the lives of the people of God so that people would have the wisdom and the guidance that they need to to live their lives in obedience to God. You'll be no more effective in serving God than you are dedicated to your time in the Word with Him daily. One of the uh, uh, least kept secrets in the church is that we talk a lot about prayer and the Word and devotion And the vast majority of professing believers do not take it seriously on a daily basis themselves. If you're not spending time in the Word, if you're not digging in yourself, if you're not having a regular time of devotion and communing with God, then how can you lead other people? How could you expect to lead your own family if you're not devoted to the Word, if you're not ministering the Word? Because ministering the Word of God is not always in a formal setting. Uh, It's often in those informal settings. Leaders are always teachers, and it's important to know who you're teaching. It's important that you're living out what you're teaching so that people will be willing to follow your leadership. And listen, there's nothing that will uh, really take your leadership off track more than a duplicitous life. There's nothing more than a hypocritical life that will derail your teaching. If you're saying to your family, if you're saying to your friends, if you're saying to your church family, do as I say, but then you're doing something else. Let me just let you in on this, friends. That's called a hypocrite. And God will not be honored by hypocrisy. He will be honored by surrender and obedience to his word. And when we do things in the way that God wants us to do them, and we minister the word of God properly, then we can expect God's blessing. That's what he's promised. We'll have prosperity in the things that eternally matter. Then the next area of focus here is that spiritual leaders have the responsibility to lead others to lead. If we're going to lead others to lead, we have to recognize our own limitations. We have to recognize what our capacity is and what our abilities are 
in what our giftings are, both naturally and spiritually, and then we have to use those to the fullest. Uh, A man by the name of Larry Parsley wrote on the need to recognize our limitations, and in doing so, he used the example of Henry Worsley. Henry Worsley is a former British Army commando and Arctic explorer who was obsessed with the Arctic explorer by the name of Ernest Shackleton. You may have read uh, some things about Shackleton. He's pretty famous and well-known among uh, expeditions and people that enjoy that type of thing. And Worsley was so obsessed with his hero in Arctic expeditions that he once slept near his grave because he was so interested in what he had done. But despite his fame and heroism, Shackleton was in many ways a broken man. He emerged physically broken after Captain Robert Scott's 1902 retreat from his polar expedition. In 1906, Shackleton led his own valiant yet unsuccessful journey in the Arctic and eventually ordered a retreat of his expedition of his men in order to save their lives. Worsley, who was obsessed with him, uh, pushed his own limits beyond what his previous milestones were. He had internalized a line from a famous poem, always a little further, always a little further. So at the age of 55 years old, he sets off for what he hoped would be an 80-day solo journey. He endures temperatures of minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. He was often disoriented and windblown, and he dodged deadly crevices, and all the while he's pulling a sled that was double his own body weight. After he had covered some 900 miles in a little over two months, his body had become battered by various illnesses and dehydration and sheer exhaustion. So just 30 miles from his goal, a defeated Worsley radios for an airlift to rescue him from the predicament that he found himself in. Sadly, his body was too far gone and he passed away from organ failure before he could even get back to the base and and to see his wife again. And it's easy to lionize Worsley who seemed to have this superhuman discipline and this rugged sense of exploration. But an article about Worsley in the New Yorker magazine observed this. In his diary, he had written, never ever give up. It echoed a lesson from one of Shackleton's books, which Worsley had once posted and written about. Never give up. There's always another move. But perhaps that was wrong. Hadn't Shackleton survived because he had realized that at a certain point he had no more moves and he turned back? Unlike Scott and others who went to a polar grave, Shackleton reckoned with his own limitations and those of his men. He understood that not everything, least of all the Arctic, can be conquered. And that within defeat, there can still be triumph, triumph of self. And the point is this. At some point in our lives, the real key to faithfulness is not just push a little bit further and a little bit harder. We've got to come to the place where we hear the words of Jesus. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I say to you today, real life lies in surrender, admitting our weaknesses and our limitations and trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
Jethro says to Moses in verse 21, you should select from among these people able men who are God-fearing and trustworthy, who hate dishonest profit. He was to select servant leaders who had the responsibility to organize the people into manageable groups. And he gives them specific instructions, place over them uh, people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. The first thing that jumps out to us about this is that each person has a different leadership capacity. It's not better or worse or more valuable or less valuable. It's just the capacity God has given us. And if he's given us the capacity to lead thousands, then we should lead thousands. But if he's given us the capacity to lead tens, then we need to lead lead those tens well so that we can be faithful to his call on our lives. Understand what kind of leader you are and lead accordingly. The most problems come in leadership when people get out of their lane and they try to lead in a manner that they were not equipped or ready to lead. This is so important in the church, so significant that we flatten out our structure to the point that there are more people invested, there are more people engaged, there are more people that are stepping up and saying, I believe God's calling me to do that. I I believe that he can use me in this capacity. And when we make ourselves available to God, then God will present opportunities in front of us to be able to serve. The next area of focus here is that spiritual leaders have the responsibility to endure and be a blessing. He says in verse 23, if you do this and God so directs, you will be able to endure and also all these people will be able to go home satisfied. If you're trying to lead out of your lane, you're going to be frustrated. People aren't going to be able to have the needs met that they have. They're not going to be able to implement their gifts And not only are you doing yourself a disservice, you're doing them a disservice. You're not only doing them a disservice, but you're doing the organization a disservice because you're not plugging in in the way that the Lord would have you wisely plug in. As a church, we are organized in this way. Cross Lanes Baptist Church follows Jesus, the chief shepherd. We keep our eyes on the one who is the cornerstone, and he is the author and the finisher of our faith. We are pastor-led collectively, Deacon served, ministry team implemented, and congregationally accountable. That's a mouthful, so I'm going to repeat it. Cross Lanes Baptist Church follows Jesus, the chief shepherd, and his pastor-led, deacon served, ministry team implemented, and congregationally accountable. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the one to whom all our allegiance is due. Pastors are the under-shepherds who are to devote themselves to prayer and to ministry of the word and to equip them saints to do the work of the ministry. And there is nothing that I am unwilling to do, but there are many things that I should not be doing in the church. And there are many things that you are capable of doing, but there are things that you should not be doing in the church. You need to be doing what God has called you to do. But all of us, if we truly understand this collective mission of God, are going to take ownership of the responsibilities that we have. We're going to take them seriously, and we're going to give our best in surrender to the Lord. I told the church when God called me here to lead this church almost 16 years ago that there was nothing that I was unwilling to do, but I absolutely could not and would not do it all. And I said, for those of you who were here and might remember this, 
that if you have a personal need and it ends up that a deacon or a Bible fellowship teacher or some other servant and fellow brother or sister in Christ meets that need and they respond to that need, you're not getting the B team. You're not getting second best. You're getting the very best of the people of God who love you and are trying to minister to you and are trying to help you through whatever your circumstance of life is. And I still believe that to be true. We're deeply engaged as your pastoral leaders in ministry to the body. And we certainly address those serious issues. And there are many times where I'm at the hospital or I'm making phone calls or I'm writing notes or I'm connecting with people personally, but I can't and won't do it all because I'm one person. And if I try to do it all and the responsibility of the body is not taken seriously, then you're going to left, be left disappointed and needs are not going to be met. You're receiving the love of God through his people, and I believe that to be true. And I serve the body of Christ best through prayer and ministry of the word and then equipping the saints, and then everything else flows out of those responsibilities. And if I get it backwards, then the whole church is going to suffer because of it. I'm so thankful for our men who are servant leaders as deacons who provide spiritual leadership within the body. Uh, I believe that they're men who are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, and they assist us in carrying out the work of the ministry. You should know them, and, and you should know that they deeply care about you, and they're available to serve you and to help you as well. And then the body of Christ carries out the work of the ministry. I love the beautiful picture in 1 Corinthians 12 of the importance of the body and the significance of every body part doing their role, fulfilling their function. And if one part of the body's not functioning, then the rest of the body is not going to function as successfully as it should. And I'm going to tell you, one of the greatest detriments to the Western church today in the 21st century is that by and large, we have become spectators rather than participants. That is the scourge of the church, and it will be the death of the church in many circles, although the church of the living Christ will march forward. If we are nothing more than spectators, we have totally missed the point. If you're coming here only to spectate on Sunday morning and to hear a relatively engaging message and maybe have your kids in some type of ministry, but you're not personally engaged in the work of God, friend, you are missing the point. And I say that to you not to put you on a guilt trip. I say that to you to encourage you that there's so much more to spiritual life than just sitting on the sidelines and being a spectator. It's being a, an active participant in the mission of God. And I'm grateful that as a church, we have a very simple, uncluttered, and straightforward structure in the organization and leadership of our church. But even so, I've been praying and thinking lately about how we can bring even more engagement into the process as the church body. And you've heard it said probably that everything rises and falls on leadership. That is a true statement in a sense, but there's a slight nuance here. If everything rises and falls on a leader or a small subset of leaders, then it's just going to fall eventually. Because if it's built on a personality or it's built on a particular pastor or it's built on a particular small subset of leaders, that's not the investment and engagement that the body of Christ needs. Each of you are equally as important as I am in this local fellowship. We just have different roles. They're not different values. They're just different roles. And we need to recognize that. We don't want to limit our outcomes or stunt our growth and our spiritual development because of that. I'm going to give you this statement and I'm going to close. 
And I want you to listen to this very carefully. Some of you need to hear this really well. Spiritual leadership is not demanding others to do what you want done. Spiritual leadership is patiently guiding others to do what God has called them to do. Let me say that again. Spiritual leadership is not demanding others to do what you want done. Spiritual leadership is patiently guiding others to do what God has called them to do. And let me illustrate this. Robert Morgan related a story from the life of John Wooden, who was the famous uh, ba- basketball coach, the most famous basketball coach ever, I would say, who credited much of his own success to his father. And he recalled a boyhood occasion, Wooden did, when he watched his father deal with a certain situation. His rural Indiana County would pay local farmers to take teams of mules or horses into gravel pits scattered around the county and haul out loads of gravel. Some pits were deeper than others, and sometimes it was hard for a team to pull a wagon that was filled with gravel out through the wet sand and up the steep inclines of the gravel pits. So one steamy summer day, wrote Wooden, a young farmer was trying to get his team of horses to pull a fully loaded wagon out of the pit. He was whipping and cursing those beautiful plow horses while they were frothing at the mouth, stomping and pulling back from him. And the elder Wooden watched for a while and then he went over to the young man and he said, let me take them for you. He said, dad started talking to the horses, almost whispering to them and stroking their noses with a soft touch. Then he walked between them, holding their bridles and bits and continued talking very calmly and gently as they settled down. Gradually, he stepped out in front of them and gave them a little whistle to start them moving forward while he guided the reins. And within moments, those two big plow horses pulled the wagon out of the gravel pit as easy as it could possibly be. And they even seemed happy to do it. And then John Wooden said this, I've never forgotten what I saw my father do and how he did it. Over the years, I've seen a lot of leaders act like that angry young farmer who lost control. So much more can usually be accomplished by dad's calm, confident, and steady approach. And Wooden took away this indelible lesson. It takes strength inside to be gentle on the outside. Spiritual leadership, according to Henry Blackaby, is getting people on to God's agenda. Our model for doing this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the most gentle, loving, encouraging, person, the God-man there's ever been. May our leadership be like that. Whether we're leading little children or students or adults, may they be comfortable in our presence because our spirits are tender And we're filled with encouragement from the Holy Spirit who comes alongside of us. That's the kind of culture that we want to try to build, continue to build on in this church. Maybe that would require some course corrections for some of you in the way that you lead, in the way that you think about other people. People are not a means to the end. God's glory is the end, but the people are of great value to Him. Do you see people as 
treasured by God? Do you love them with compassion like Jesus loves people? That's the kind of leaders we have to be. And that doesn't mean we're not at times firm or direct or corrective. But the spirit and the focus of our leadership has to be that we're not trying to do it alone. And we're not demanding anybody to do anything. We're showing them what God has called them to do. And we're helping them to follow the chief shepherd. That's our call. Anything less than that is not faithful. That's the kind of leaders we need to be, and we need to do it together. Father, thank you for this model of leadership that you've given us in Exodus 18. From the life of Moses, a man who was a deeply spiritual man, the great figure that looms over all of the Old Testament, and yet he was willing to make some adjustments so that he could more effectively lead the people of God. Lord, may you lay on our hearts what our individual burdens are for leadership. I pray, God, help us that this church would not be a church of spectators. Help us that this would not be a place of religious consumers that care nothing more than to attend a a one-time-a-week event and then walk away unchanged. I pray that we would be disciples of Jesus in every facet of our lives and that your spirit would transform us and that people would be drawn to us, not repelled from us because of the spirit that lives within us. Give us that gentle, encouraging, strong leadership that comes from within by your power. Give us wisdom, Lord, where we have weak spots in our church, not knowing, uh, Lord, how to do things. Help us to do them better. And not to believe that we've arrived because we're just at one point on the journey. We're just in the river of your will, Lord, and it's flowing right along. May our faith in you increase each day. I pray if there are corrective steps that need to be taken in any of our individual leadership style, our heart, our tone, our spirit, that your Holy Spirit would direct us in that so that we would be more like Christ. Jesus, make us more like you. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.